0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. This is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday. Time for an older episode of the show. This one from The Vault. It was called Science in the House of Wax, and it originally published on October 1st, 2020. This one was all about, like, haunted wax museum movies.
1: Yes, yes. This is a fun one. We are, of course, now uh, into our Halloween season here on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. This is our first Halloween Vault episode, I believe. And, yeah, this, one, this one's really cool. You get into, like, what are wax figures? Why are wax figures? How have they been used and thought about um, throughout human history?
0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And hey, it is finally October, our favorite month of the year. If you're new to the show, every October, every year, we spend the whole month uh, talking about monster science, spooky stuff. And we have got a firecracker to kick off this month, this year, I think, because Robert, you and I both got wax fever.
1: That's right, uh, we are going to be talking about wax uh, in particular we're going to be talking about wax and human flesh wax in the human form what happens when we make human bodies out of wax how do we feel about that and we're gonna we're gonna gonna start at the uh, I guess at the, the end of this consideration, at like a, if this were like a, a drainage pipe, we're going to find where it empties out into uh, the river of popular culture and uh, genre film. Because we're going to talk about wax horror movies, house of wax movies, wax museum movies, the treatment
0: of wax in horror cinema. I love your metaphor here because yes, climbing in through the sewer grate is the only way to infiltrate the wax fortress. <laughs> uh, no, wait did did you end up watching the nineteen fifty three House of Wax?
1: No, I watched the the wonderful trailer for it that contains no footage from the film <laughs> and just, uh, just a whole bunch of crazy fonts and promises about what the film will consist
0: of and how it will change your life. Oh, man, the lettering of the titles is actually one of the best things in this movie. It's like very bright orange and it's zooming out at the camera. Uh, so the, the House of Wax 1953 is a Vincent Price feature exploring the dark mania of wax crime, <laughs> and it is made truly exquisite by just scene after scene of of back to back 3D effects money shots where there is there's like a solid five minutes in the middle of the movie of a guy just doing paddle ball tricks straight into the camera <laughs> lens, you know, like in in Jason 3D where he's like shoving the knife toward the camera. It's mm-hmm. it's that level of uh, of 3D exploitation, uh, but other than that. It is a film about a wax sculptor played by Vincent Price who is obsessively devoted to his craft. And he's got this belief that his sculptures are somehow real people who can speak to him. Uh, Like he says, he'd rather die than have his sculptures destroyed. But then he's got this scheming evil investor who wants to burn down uh, Price's wax museum and get the insurance cash. And so uh, he does this and Price gets injured in the fire and then he turns to wax crime. Deciding that he's got to he's got to kill people and use their dead bodies to make wax figures for a brand new museum, which is weird because it seems like that would kind of take the artistry out of it. Right. If you're just using real dead bodies, like it wasn't the whole point that you were crafting them.
1: Yes. And this is but this is something that, first of all, we see time and time again in wax horror movies. The idea that the wax figure is actually wax cast around a human victim and it's almost like a like a weird backhanded compliment. Like like the artistry is so perfect in these; they look so lifelike. They must be made out of corpses. You took a corpse, right? This isn't this isn't a product of your skill. You're a murderer, right?
0: Right. Yeah. And and this, there are like whole scenes in the movie where characters are just sitting around arguing about whether or not this wax figure is a real person or not. <laughs> uh, and it, it, spoiler alert: it is. It's a <laughs> You know that that that's not Joan of Arc. That's my friend Matilda who uh, got murdered in the elevator last week. A uh, uh, but- quick quick fun fact about this film: I was reading that it is. Uh- it's
1: largely responsible, apparently, for really uh, uh, bringing Vincent Price back into these leading horror roles. Oh. Apparently, uh, prior to this, he was doing a lot of, you know, second and third billing, relatable characters. And, uh, and th- th- because of this film, we see some of like the real uh, horror films to come with Vincent Price. Though I have to say, Vincent Price, all, the likability always shines through, no matter how deplorable the character
0: Totally. yeah. He's always that same lovable Vincent Price. Uh, but I, I didn't realize that about his career. So maybe he was like coming out of the era where he'd been the narrator in a made-for-TV adaptation of A Christmas Carol or something. <laughs> yeah, the equivalent thereof, yeah. Uh, but then also, uh, there, there's a funny thing about this movie, that is that it's notable for featuring a very young Charles Bronson as a character named Igor, who is Price's assistant in Wax Crime, which seems mm. a little bit on the nose. yeah. <laughs> Uh, But then also, you know, there was a remake of this. So, actually, I think the 53 movie was technically a remake of an earlier movie that you might mention in a minute. But before I ever saw the 53 one, I saw many years ago the 2005, I guess, final remake of House of Wax. (laughs) that was marketed almost exclusively on the fact that Paris Hilton was in it and you would get to see her die. Like, literally, there were posters that said, see Paris die. Yeah, this is a weird one to
1: think back on because – this was a time when paris hilton was at the center of like media um mm-hmm. attention and this whole f- this film was just sold entirely on this idea of celebrity death worship
0: <laughs> yeah uh, i tried to rewatch it last night it was a brief experience of intense suffering and i did <laughs> not i was we were not able to finish watching this uh it is probably the most mid-2000s thing I have ever seen. It's just 2005 in a pill form. So you've got Paris Hilton, you've got Chad Michael Murray as like the bad boy who turns out to be good in a pinch. And then there's a character who's shoving a digital camcorder in everybody's face. Remember when every horror movie had that for some reason? Mm -hmm. Uh, It would randomly intercut to grainy digital video for, for no apparent reason. Uh, and the, the soundtrack was just constantly coming in with, you know, sudden compressed guitars and the butt rock voice just stabbing into your ears. Uh, it's, it yeah, uh, I couldn't finish it. Uh, I,
1: I was reading about it. Uh, this is one I, I have not watched. But apparently the wax museum in the film is supposed to actually be made of wax as well. Which, um <laughs> It sounds stupid, but it's stupid enough that I at least have to commend it on committing to such a ludicrous notion.
0: <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I don't know. I didn't get that far this time, and I do not recall from the last time I watched it. Though it does feature a Paris Hilton made of wax, or at least covered in wax. Uh, all of the characters look a little bit waxy anyway. And I would say, well, that's an intentional effect you know, for this film in particular. But really, I think that was just the visual style of mid-2000s horror movies.
1: Now, um, let's see. We're, we're not going to be able to touch on all the, the wax horror films in this episode, really say much about them. I will say that Waxwork, which came out in 1988, uh, was a lot of fun and had a pretty fun sequel as well. It has the, the guy from Gremlin and Gremlin's, uh, two in oh, it. Oh, yeah. Zach Galligan. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he plays. he's in both films. And, uh, David Warner plays the, uh, the wax master, the villain in the first one. The waxwork films, as I recall, are, are very, they're kind of, um, you know that genre of, um, of of fantasy film that existed uh, at the time where it's like you're skipping channels and you're being thrown into different realities?
0: Yes. Yes,
1: I do. That's what the, this was based on. It's like that plus Wax Museum horror film. And I remember it being kind of fun. I haven't watched these since the the, the 90s, but I, I remember them being kind
0: of fun late night uh, viewing experiences. <laughs> so it's kind of like the montage at the end of Wes Craven's Shocker. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Um
1: now I should I should also point out that the 1935 film Mad Love starring Peter Lore uh, uh this is one of my favorite weird pictures and probably my favorite new to me film that I saw this year. Uh it actually features a wax double of a popular performer uh, as a plot point. Oh yeah. So you see, it, you see it popping up again and again, uh, at least as an element in a weird or a horror movie plot. Uh, but, it, but, but, but just weird wax films in general, they seem to go all the way back. It appears that wax museum horror movies uh, basically just are, are, are across the entire landscape of cinematic tradition. The earliest in- example that I was able to find was uh, Figures de Siri uh, with, with the, or The Man with Wax Faces from 1923. And this is a short, silent French horror film based on a short story by André Delord, a French playwright of the um, the, the Grand uh, Guignol
0: um, uh, tradition. You know the the sort of horror decapitation yeah. plays grand, of the time. Grand Guignol. We we, we talked grand about Grand Guignol. With, yes. Yeah, yes. with the uh, I think we talked about this in our episode uh, about the the masked killers, right? How the, mm-hmm. like the the Jason movies and all that sort of grow out of the Grand Guignol tradition, which was like just extremely gory stage plays.
1: Yeah. Which, interestingly enough, also part of the plot to uh, Mad Love. Also, another kind of cool thing about this particular film, it was apparently thought to be a lost film up until 2007. Oh, wow. But even even during the 1920s, there were multiple other wax movies that came out in this film's wake. Um, there was 1923's While Paris Sleeps, 1924's uh, Wax Works, uh, 1929's Seven Faces, and another film in 1929 uh, titled Chamber of Horrors. And subsequent decades would prove, you know, that we had plenty of tolerance for more wax films uh i think that you pretty much have wax films popping up in every subsequent decade um of uh, of 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 horror movie
0: history so the idea that wax figures are inherently creepy is not one of these like new creepiness inventions or discoveries like how you know i don't know what year it was that everybody decided clowns were creepy you know Mm -hmm. um but this seems to be like a to go basically back as far as wax figures go right there's always sort of this understanding that they had extreme horror potential
1: yeah well it's i think that well it's definitely gonna be one of the things we explore in this episode uh but clearly throughout the the history of cinema Mm -hmm. it's always been established like there was never a question there was never like a pre wax is creepy era in cinema Uh uh-huh and we, we should also note that, um, that that prior to the 1920s, there was also a, just a history of wax chambers of horror um, that you would find in wax museums. They would have this rogues gallery of, you know, generally serial murderers and burglars and grave robbers. Uh, and this tradition uh, dates back to uh, you know, even before that. So in a way, wax was a medium for horror before cinema became available to host all of our fears and our revulsions.
0: Yeah, uh, th- that's reflected in, in the 53 price movie that, you know, they, they're they getting pressure from potential investors to say, like, wouldn't you make a lot more money if your wax museum was full of murderers and people going <laughs> to executions? And he does end up staging a lot of those uh, scenes. But uh, I, I remember actually going to Madame Tussauds and like I was just kind of shocked by how much of it was just absolutely like puerile interest in in like gross and violent stuff yeah basically the 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 wax
1: chamber of horrors was the original murder podcast mm. uh, <laughs> so um that, yeah that's, so i i 'm joking, but of course it I think it does show that yeah that that interest has always been there, and we have to find a way to express it uh, culturally. Uh, I should also note that there's a literary tradition here as well, most notably The Wax Works by Charles S. Belden, which was the basis for 1933's Mystery of the Wax Museum and the subsequent House of Wax Films in 53 and 2005. Oh, I see. Now, there are a number of these wax films that I have not seen, uh, (laughs) but I felt like I needed to watch something new. I got so excited about it. So I ended up watching a large portion of the
0: 1969 film Nightmare in Wax. Is this the one that's got Cameron Mitchell in the photo, looking like William Shatner with an eye patch?
1: I, I'm glad you brought that up because I think there's something about. I was thinking about this earlier that that Cameron Mitchell is like he he he's very similar um, to Shatner in in many ways. You know, has simil- similar similar uh, sort of uh, body and stature, and also uh, you know similar like like stereotypically handsome face, except with Cameron Mitchell everything is just a little more dangerous and unsettling like like you you can you can trust a character played by william shatner but you cannot trust a character played by cameron mitchell if cameron mitchell had played the captain of the starship enterprise it would have been an entirely different universe it would have been a very a, a very dark starfleet if he was uh, at the uh, at the helm he's a shatner with lurid secrets yes and in this film, he he, gets, he has a lot of time to shine, uh, as much as anything shines in a film that is this grubby looking and this grubby sounding. Um, it's, uh, there may be a cleaner cut of it out there, I don't know, but the, the version I watched is the one as of this recording currently on Amazon Prime, and it is it's just it is grubby. It's, <laughs> you, I had to put on the subtitles to understand what people were saying part of the time, <laughs> okay, yeah. and it is, you know it's, it's, it's just the sound quality of
0: the thing. I wonder which is more visually unpleasant, this one or the 2005 movie?
1: I think in different ways. Like this one, this one has a lot of gels, and it's you know, like again, the, the video quality is just kind of grubby. There are a lot of scenes of a of a gel lit Cameron Mitchell in this kind of dark satanic robe with uh, scarred face, eye patch. Constantly just chain smoking and drinking and having <laughs> these just really insane uh, maniacal monologues as he's uh, either by himself or when he's tormenting um, a victim. It's it's a weird one. I went ahead and fast forwarded to the end uh, just to see how it wrapped up. And it just it just ends in nightmare and madness. Um,
0: it, it's a film that makes you feel uh, uneasy. Well, maybe we should talk about some of the aspects that apparently have to show up in every wax movie right yes yeah there
1: there are certain certain things you're always going to find um facial scarring or deformity seems uh to to always be there seemingly linking the the human likeness in wax uh to in the in the idea that it could melt and that it is um you know an imperfect medium in which to work it's not like stone Mm -hmm. comparing that to the actual fragility of human flesh um and on top of that Almost all of these movies have some sort of a wax master behind it all. Often the wax master is the one that is scarred, and it's generally played by some sort of interesting character actor.
0: Okay, so the 53, you got Vincent Price, he gets, mm-hmm. he gets burned in a fire, and then his face is scarred, and then turns to wax crime. But he, it, it, there's a variation in the 53 movie, which is that he makes himself a, a wax face of his old face. So for yes. a significant part of the, the later part of the movie, he's going around looking like regular Vincent Price, uh, but it's because he supposedly has this mask on.
1: Yes, yeah, and you see that it, that exact same situation pop up in other Waxmaster films, uh, they're, they're not always, but certainly the Cameron Mitchell character here is a, is an example of that. But uh, but so some of the other characters that have played Waxmasters include uh, Peter Cushing, um, David Warner, uh, also John Carradine. Hmm. So uh, you know, this gives you an idea that the type of kid. basically your 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 middle aged horror movie lead, the actor who will say yes, yeah. <laughs> Another important aspect of wax movies is if you can afford it, you've got to have a cauldron of wax, and someone needs to either go into that cauldron of wax or
0: be suspended over it. Yep. Yep. All correct. Though I got a bone to pick with that cauldron thing in a minute here when I get into some of the chemistry of wax. But I've got another element that has to appear in all these movies, which is that the palace of wax must burn. (laughs) You know, there's a fire and you get to watch the wax figures melting grotesquely. Uh, Because of the textural similarity of wax to skin, it sometimes looks surprisingly like a real human melting. I don't think a real human would melt quite like that, but... You know, something about it looks organic. You know, it, does, mm-hmm. it doesn't look like uh, just a normal type of inanimate object. It's something kind of like alive and coming apart. Uh, and it almost makes me wonder if, like all these wax movies where the the wax figures always melt, could be the source of the melt movie trend. Oh yeah, I, I think that's that's a good point. But I want to add another thing, which is that I don't know for sure, but I think it's possible that this common set piece of the Wax Palace burning down is inspired by real historical events. Because I found an archived article uh, from The Guardian, from I guess it was The Manchester Guardian at the time, from March 19th, 1925 – about a fire at Madame Tussauds in London from that year. Hmm. So it looks like there so there was a fire at this wax museum, this very famous popular wax museum in London. Uh, the fire started in the evening around 10:31 one night. And then firefighters showed up. They had it extinguished by midnight, but there was a lot of damage. And while it was burning, it reportedly turned into a huge spectacle, uh, with The Guardian reporting that possibly 10,000 people assembled in the neighborhood to watch watch the fire be nearby. That number sounds high to me. I don't know how yeah. that was estimated. But then again, I, I guess they did not have TV at the time. <laughs> uh, but there's, there's some real gems from this article. Uh, so I just want to read a few quotes. One of them is, uh, quote – the fire brigade was under the command of a Mr. A.R. Dyer who was brought to the scene from a theater where he had been spending the evening with some friends. Despite the fact that he was in evening dress, he took an active part in the operations. So you've, you've got, I guess, a guy in a, like a fancy tuxedo commanding the firefighters at, at uh, Tussauds. And then um, once the firefighters start to get the blaze under, under control... It says that the men of the salvage corps started running in and grabbing wax figures out of the exhibits to bring them out to safety. Uh, The salvage corps were a thing. They were were like a force that worked in concert with firefighters at the time where the firefighters be trying to put out the blaze and the salvage corps would be running in trying to grab stuff to prevent property damage and loss. (laughs) Uh, I don't know if they were somehow funded by insurance companies or something. It seems Mm -hmm. possible. Uh, But to read a quote from this article... Two of the salvage corps men were seen struggling along with a huge cage containing a green parrot, which, after a moment or two, hopped onto its perch and began to show signs of a return to perkiness. Uh, this was uh, apparently a, a famous green parrot uh, of Madame Tussauds, and there was another report in the Evening Post that says after the parrot was, I guess that it had been sort of rendered sluggish by some smoke inhalation, but once they got it back outside, it sort of perked back up. And this uh, this report in the evening post says then it startled everyone by remarking this is a rotten business (laughs) i can't do a parrot voice but "Ah, rotten business (laughs) and then one more uh longer quote from that guardian article members of the crowd inquired after the safety of charlie peace crippen and other notorious criminals from the chamber of horrors so people are out there yelling like how's crippen doing is he okay (laughs) um (laughs) Uh, The sight of the salvage men shouldering the wax models was a strange one. An eyewitness who lives opposite Madame Tussauds said in an interview that the fire was a wonderful spectacle. Strong red and golden flames leapt 50 feet from the roof of the building. The wax models could be distinctly heard sizzling. It is strange to think of the number of eminent and highly respectable people being burned in effigy in London. <laughs> Madame Tussauds famous waxwork spread its net far and wide with at least 40 people of the present parliament and scores of notabilities outside uh, were represented in wax in these burning galleries. Criminals represented in the Chamber of Horrors, however, will have no feelings in the matter as they are all dead. <laughs> Well, this is great because this does
1: also get into some of the ideas we're going to discuss concerning the, the likeness that has been created in wax and its relationship to the living human
0: or the deceased human and, and whatever the case may be. You know, there are some photos online uh, that are alleging to be of the aftermath of the fire at Madame Tussauds. They appear to be of like various like charred and, and partial remains of wax figures. I'm not I, I couldn't confirm that they were definitely from. Uh, this actual fire, but wherever they're from, they really do look absolutely horrific. It's, <laughs> it's, one, it's one of the most nightmarish things I've ever seen.
1: Yeah, it's just like bodies and lifelike heads, and they're just kind of, uh, clearly, they're just kind of like thrown up against a wall um, <laughs> you know, temporarily. Uh, but it, it, it is bizarre to look at. It is unsettling because they are, they are lifelike and yet lifeless.
0: Now, there's an interesting thing that I want to get into for a minute, if you don't mind, a brief chemistry diversion, which is uh, so the fact that all of these movies feature a roasting, burning, melting hell of wax at some point, it, it kind of raises an issue about the chemistry of wax. What actually happens when wax burns? Like, w- what happens in a candle? Uh, I think this is something that uh, I probably should have been able to intuit the answer to, but I went most of my life, I think, not really knowing the question of how a candle works or, you know, what what is be- what is happening when a candle burns down. Because
1: this is key, Be, you know, we have to, to, to realize that when, when we, we get into the discussions of, of wax bodies that have been created, like one of our primary relationships with wax would have long been the candle. And, and so we bring that knowledge of what a candle appears to do to our, I think, to our consideration of wax bodies and wax art, et cetera.
0: Yeah. And a candle is, despite being a very mundane object, it's actually a little bit more mysterious and mystical the more you look into it. And it's actually a wonderful scientific invention. Uh, So so technically, you know, you got a lot of different chemical compounds that are called wax. There's not just one thing that is wax. Wax is the umbrella category for malleable organic compounds that are solid at room temperature and lipophilic, meaning that you know they're they're not gonna dissolve in water, they will only dissolve in oil or other nonpolar solvents. Uh, And basically, almost all waxes, I think, perhaps all, at least almost all, are hydrocarbons. They're made up of hydrogen and carbon atoms. Uh, The most common type that you will find for various consumer items and uses today is probably paraffin wax, which is a modern industrial product that's derived from petroleum, first created in the uh, early 1800s. But People have been using other types of wax for thousands of years. There are a lot of types of wax that are derived from animal products. For example, uh, we're going to talk about the ancient Egyptians in a bit, but they were certainly lords of beeswax. And then there's lanolin, which is a type of wool wax. It is secreted from glands in the skin of animals like sheep. I believe called the sebaceous glands, which is, that's a good word for, for your tool belt. Uh, but there's also uh, spermaceti, which is a historically very important wax that came out of the heads of whales, like sperm whales and bottlenose whales, which some people once believed was literally the congealed semen of the whale stored in its head for some reason. It's not, it's a waxy material. Uh, but so you probably know from experience that candle wax, whatever it's made of, generally is not flammable in the sense that you know oily rags or something are you, you can't hold a flame up to the wax edge of a candle uh, and and watch it just catch fire instead it's going to melt and run down the side right mm-hmm. nevertheless the wax is the fuel for the candle flame. When a candle burns, the fuel that's burning is the wax that the candle's made of. And the crucial factor here is that wax is not flammable in its solid or liquid state. It has to be vaporized into its constituent hydrogen and carbon molecules in order to catch fire. So the way it works is once you light the wick, the flame melts a little bit of the solid wax around the base of the wick. And then once the wax is melted, it gets drawn up into the wick via capillary action just kind of like kind of like the way that water is drawn up the length of a celery stalk and then this liquid wax gets even hotter as it gets sucked up into the area where the fire is and it undergoes a second phase change into the gaseous form of its constituent molecules and then the fire happens. The heat of the flame causes those gaseous molecules to react with the oxygen in the air, and this creates more fire. It keeps the the flame going. And as long as new wax can be drawn up into the wick, the flame can keep burning. Uh, Candles are actually a rather ingenious invention, uh, but there's also something kind of uncanny to them, even in their mundane form, which is that unlike wood or coal or a lot of the other things that we burn on purpose candles burn without leaving any ash or any solid you know detritus the the, the wax that burns simply disappears completely into thin air and this is certainly a quality
1: of of candles and wax that, uh, that influences our magical thinking
0: regarding wax. Oh, yeah. This will definitely come up again, uh, certainly with ancient Egypt and, and things like that. But um, th- this actually leads to a, a very fun and easy science experiment that, like, if you've got kids and you want to try this at home uh, – I just did this myself earlier today mm-hmm. – Uh, You ever notice how, so when you first attempt to light a candle, when the wax is still completely solid, it can kind of take a while, right? Like you have Mm -hmm. to hold the flame against the wick. You have to put it right there on the wick and usually have to hold it there for several seconds or the candle won't light. But- if you leave a candle burning for a few minutes, uh, first of all, you might notice that the the flame burns almost perfectly clean with no smoke. You know, it's, a, it's kind of a, a miraculous looking thing when you notice it most of the time. If there's a fire, you're going to see smoke coming off of it. But then if you blow out the candle, suddenly you will see smoke. It'll be smoke rising off the wick. What is that stuff? Well, primarily this is vaporized wax. This is wax converted to its vaporized form, uh, condensing into little droplets in the air as it rises off the wick. And now it can't react with the oxygen in the air anymore because the flame is gone. But if you hold a flame up to a candle that you have just blown out while the wax vapor is still rising off of the wick you will notice that it lights much more easily than it did at first. In fact, it happens almost instantly, and you probably don't even have to touch the lighter, uh, lighter flame to the wick. You can just hold it close. And the difference is that now the candle has been burning for a few minutes. There's already wax in its liquid form and even in its gaseous form rising in that smoke. And this brings me back to the the fact that uh, the fact of those bubbling cauldrons in the wax movies, you know, the the fact that vaporized wax is so flammable is one of those reasons that that all of those movie scenes with a bubbling cauldron of wax are scary. Like if you're trying to heat and melt wax for sculpting, I think people are are usually uh, advised to do it over a double boiler, you know, so you have water Mm -hmm. boiling on the bottom and you're using the steam from that to heat your, your boiler with the wax to prevent accidentally heating the wax to the point where it becomes extremely flammable and dangerous uh and if you know if it does get to that point if you have wax reaching its flash point it's also not the kind of fire that can be easily put out say by throwing water on it because throwing water onto lipid based fires can be very dangerous make it worse
1: this is excellent advice for any would-be wax masters out there who are (laughs) looking to set up their
0: secret dungeon studio yeah don't play around with wax
1: now, again, we're not able to reference every wax horror film that's that's come out. You know, we're trying to sort of stick to the uh, the, the generalities here. But <laughs> I, should, I do want to point out that there is a really cool wax based uh, entity that shows up in uh, TV's Doom Patrol, uh, which is a, a current television series based on the comic book. And in this case, particularly Grant Morrison's run with the title. There's this character named Candlemaker. that's this wax dripping candelabra headed being with with like candle light on its head and in the pits of its eyes. Um, and it in the comics, it's described as being an egregore, this uh, thing that's created by unconscious tensions surrounding historical crises, such as the threat of nuclear, nuclear annihilation. And the, the comic version is quite ghastly as well. But the TV version also creates this wonderful ambiguity of melting flesh and or candle wax. And there's as it begins to uh, uh, tear into all the characters around it, there's also a lot of uh, melted wax shenanigans and the way it dispatches people and like leaves them covered in now dried wax
0: behind it. Man, that's a great idea for a monster.
1: Yeah, it's pretty good. I was not familiar with it prior to checking out this uh, show uh, because I'd never, uh, actually never read Grant Morrison's r- uh, run on Doom Patrol but uh, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful creation and it's, it's brought to, uh, to, to life rather nicely in the show. Should we take a break and then come back to talk more wax? Let's do it. <laughs> all right we 're back, so uh, we talked about the the pop culture, the end of it the the genre film end of this uh, situation. But let's talk a little bit about the idea of of wax and magic, wax and and ancient magic with with a focus on the human form. So years ago, we did uh, not that many years ago, what, a few years ago, (laughs) we did an episode titled uh, The the Tears of Ray, all about uh, the ancient Egyptian art of beekeeping and the various uses that the ancient Egyptians had for wax and for honey, both of which were considered the the tears of the god Ray. And we chatted with um, uh, author Gene Kritsky about it because he'd written this fabulous book titled The Tears of Ray. And and, uh, certainly we encourage you to check out that episode uh, to hear that uh, interview. But uh, we're also going to refer back to some of what we discussed concerning wax in that episode. All right. So, Egyptian physicians would use beeswax to treat wounds. They would also give you a wax amulet to burn. Uh, as we discussed already, it burns brightly. It burns up completely, symbolically, and by extension, magically. It, it, you know, c- The idea is it consumes the illness, or the thing that is created in its likeness is now just magically evaporated from the world through
0: fire. Yeah, and apparently this is not something that only happened in ancient Egypt. There there have been traditions in a number of uh, different religions. I think in, in uh, pre-Christian Rome, there were also like yes. cases of people burning wax effigies of, say, an organ of the body or something like that to try to get a, a blessing from the gods or to defeat an illness of some kind. Uh, and, and it seems to be – there's something about the way that the wax would disappear completely that made it seem more magical –
1: Right. Yes. Uh, yeah. We'll, we'll get into to that in more detail, but but certainly, yeah. You see that in the pre-Christian tradition, and then as an element of Christianity with the use of votive candles. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, the, the Egyptians were were super into it. They used beeswax for for a number of different uh, purposes. I mean, they used it as an, as an adhesive. They also used it as an embalming agent, a light source, and an artistic medium. Uh, so already we can see the idea of wax being used, in many cases, in physical contact with the flesh of the living and the dead. Uh, and, also, and also as something out of which to form likenesses of living flesh. Um, but but uh, there were a number of, of magical uh, connotations here as well, and, and part of that I think comes down to the uh, and, and certainly uh, uh, Gene Kritsky made this argument that a lot of it comes down to the particular properties of wax. It's it's malleable. It's insoluble in water. It doesn't discolor and doesn't lose shape after being molded into its desired form. And in that respect, wax figures can last for centuries. But also, if you place it in the sun, its color can change, which uh, Kritsky believes uh, might have been highly desirable as well, given the importance of the god Ray and, uh, and the sun
0: in Egyptian oh. mythology. Yeah, okay. So it's almost like the god is, is continuing to work his magic on the products of his, of his uh, hidden industry.
1: Right. And then, of course, there's this idea that it leaves no ash behind, uh, that it burns cleanly and almost magically. Uh, Apparently, the the salt 825 uh, papyrus uh, describes how wax, quote, could be used to ensure the destruction of Seth, the god of confusion, disorder and violence and the murderer of Osiris. So you'd simply make a beeswax likeness of your enemies and you would burn them to kill the name of Seth.
0: Now, the very nature of these likenesses or figurines would seem to suggest that we're, we're probably not likely to possess a lot of them, right?
1: Yeah, that's apparently one of the issues. If it is a, a, a like a small statue that's meant to be burned and consumed, uh, there are not going to be that many that remain. Uh, but still, we see plenty of other wax sculptures that apparently had other uses, wax amulets and whatnot, that show up um, in uh, the, the remains of, of ancient Egypt. Um and then there are also various stories as well. Uh, for instance, there's a, a 12th dynasty myth that tells of a priest by the name of uh, Webinar, uh, which always sounds a bit like I, I always read it and I picture Webinar
0: Ugh. in my my head. But, uh, Isn't that rate, a terrible word? I want to purge <laughs> Webinar from my mind. I, I wish I didn't know it. Yeah, well, now it's it's kind of life, right? Uh,
1: but at any rate, this particular priest made a wax crocodile, also using herbs and spells, and he threw it into a pond where his life's lover was bathing. It came to life, swallowed the lover, and then vanished. A week later, he called the croc up from the depths, and then he touched it, and the animal turned back into a wax model, disgorging the lover. The pharaoh watched all of this as it happened and decided, well, actually, the lover should die. So the model was transformed into a croc again, ate the lover again, and then left for good. Make up your mind. (laughs) So anyway, that's, uh, certainly check out Jean um, uh, Kritsky's book if you want more about ancient Egyptian use of wax and, uh, and, and honey. But, but basically, the idea is there were a lot of magical ideas about what wax is, and I, I think it can help. Uh, these ideas can also highlight some of just the universal aspects of wax that make it attractive to the human imagination.
0: Yeah, one of the things we didn't even really get deep into here but also worth looking up if you know you've never seen them before um uh, look up the 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 Fayum mummy portraits. These are some some of the most striking paintings I think that that are extant from the ancient world. I mean just like it's hard to believe the level of color and detail that's still visible on them, given how old they are. Um, and a lot of these paintings were made with a process that uh, was able to preserve the color of the paint because the painting incorporated wax. Like instead of just regular paint, it used something called encaustic painting, which I think is where you, you mix beeswax together with your pigments, and this produces a, a type of painting that is you know, more durable over time.
1: Which is, which is interesting because one of the, the, the critiques and the, the criticisms that's often made against wax-based art is that it is, it is uh, so impermanent, the idea that it's just going to melt away, it's not going to stand the test of time. Uh, clearly, you know, as, as we've discussed so far and will continue to discuss, there are, there are a number of, uh, of examples of wax art that has stood the test of time.
0: Totally. And yes, uh, once again, if you've never looked up the Fayou mummy portraits, they are absolutely worth a look. It's just shocking.
1: So if we fast forward to medieval Europe, we we see a world where where wax still has is important for a host of reasons, including the use of wax tablets, sealants, candles, torches, you know, all the the basic material uses for wax you might expect. Uh, But also they became useful in the creation of death masks. Man, I love a death mask. It's a it's an interesting and you know, I think complex topic because it comes down to that big question, how do we remember the dead? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because as with all of our memories, memories of faces are subject to change, erasure, elaboration and more. Uh, you know, and plus there there are differences in neural abilities to some visual images. To, today we have photos and we have videos to help us maintain the likeness of the deceased. But there was a time when, you know, other than painting um, and, and other artistic traditions, you know, what were you going to do? Well, like certainly, if you wanted a uh, you know one hundred percent realistic depiction of an individual's face. Uh, you only had so many options. One of those options
0: would come to be, at least for some members of society, the death mask. I mean, one of the most interesting things about it to me, I guess, is is the question it raises of, um, do, does one want to be remembered as one looked at the time of death? You know, like, is is yeah. that the image of you that should be preserved?
1: Yeah, uh, that is a difficult question to answer. I mean, that's ultimately one that, that probably comes up in uh considerations of even modern funeral um, traditions you know certainly mm-hmm. if your body has been em- embalmed you're not going to be uh, uh, laid out to look like you did at the moment of death or anything so ghastly but still it's going to be your body at that final state of life like right. if you were an older individual it is going to be your aged body not your youthful um, you know uh, vigorous body etc
0: like it's a very common practice now even at a, you know an open casket funeral like people can come and visit the body as it looks in death but very often there will be a photograph uh or a number of photographs like right there beside the coffin of the person younger you know when they, yeah. when they were in their prime
1: so yeah i don't know that i would necessarily want to be remembered exclusively based on how i looked after death but i, I mean i guess that was often the, the best time to get in there and and make a cast of the thing <laughs> uh you would first of all, you would see even back in Roman days, you would see wax sometimes used to preserve the features of a deceased person for the purpose of of modeling or sculpture, uh, just to, you know to, to sort of keep it all together long enough to, to model a copy of it but uh, if you 're going to create a straight up death mask based on a, a person 's face you 're going to need to create a mold. Um, uh, and plaster was often used, uh, just as plaster is used today for for facial casts. You know, certainly everybody's seen a a makeup uh, FX documentary at this point and seen that performed on your 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 favorite uh, actor, uh, you know, or, or two. But um, but on top of using uh, plaster, uh, wax could also be used. I was looking at particularly at Iris I J M Ginsum's Death Masks Unlimited, uh, which appeared in the British Medical Journal in 1985, uh, and point out that, yeah, they would sometimes pour wax over the features. And these would often, the resulting um, uh, death mass that they created would, would then be used as a source for use in other artistic works. But by the 1800s, um, we saw a change. The mass became sought after in and of themselves, the creation of this lifelike um face, uh, and the resulting plaster or metal version of the face was used as an object of
0: remembrance in and of itself, not merely as a model for other uh, treatments. That's interesting. I I wonder if that has anything to do with uh, changing attitudes around the same time toward, I don't know, uh, like objective accuracy in the capturing of images, say, like, you know, also in the 1800s, we're getting the first photography as opposed to portraiture.
1: Yeah, yeah, this is a good point. It's 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 the difference between the um yeah, the painting that you have commissioned and perhaps had some insight into exactly how you were represented and then just the abstract reality of the plaster cast that is made of your face after you die. You know, yeah. <laughs> you're not even around to say, "Oh, uh, can we can we do something about these uh, eyebrows here? Can uh, have, I would like this mole removed, etc." like nope, this is what you um uh, what what you wax is what
0: you get. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's like uh, in the modern era, we tend to think a photo of a person is somehow more real than a painting of them. You know, it somehow more mm-hmm. realistically captures what they looked like. That was the real them. And I guess you could probably say the same thing about a death mask versus, you know, an, a somewhat interpreted sculpture. Right.
1: Now, now the face is ultimately only one part of the scenario here. And we'll, we'll come back to it. But there's also this this rich history of anatomical wax replicas as it concerns organs and other parts of the body, you know, hands, etc.
0: Yeah, and we were reading a a really interesting. Paper about this uh, by a scholar named Roberta Balestriero in the Journal of Anatomy called "Anatomical Models and Wax Venuses: Art Masterpieces or Scientific Craftworks." And Robert, I really liked this paper. I thought this was so interesting. It was all about the the history of uh, of how. Human anatomy has been rendered in wax sculptures and to what degree those sculptures incorporate elements of or are considered examples of fine art.
1: Yeah, it's a wonderful paper. It's available in full uh, for free online, no paywall. And it, has, uh, it, ha- it also has illustrations of the, these work, it has photographs of the various wax works that uh, the author is referring to. Now, one of the areas that uh, Balestriero begins with is going back to burnable effigies of wax. And the, the author notes that pre-Christian votive offerings, quote, could be of any kind, but often reproduce parts of the human body re- representing healthy or diseased organs. Now, one thing that Balestriero points out in this particular paper is how, between the 13th and 17th century, uh, Florentine and foreign nobles in Florence would commission life-sized, colored wax figures of themselves, which were then dressed in clothes. They would, you know, you could give them wigs, and basically create a stand-in for yourself that would just hang out in church (laughs) as an act of devotion. This this is so good. This is so
0: weird. (laughs) This is amazing. You remember the episodes we did a few years back about religious technology? Uh, Mm -hmm. So you would have, for example, the prayer wheel, you know, in a way this is trying to create a machine that can accomplish a religious or or supernatural objective by doing prayers for you at a greater rate than a person could. But I, I also wonder if there's some sort of vague idea of religious technology here where if you can create a good enough likeness of yourself to put in the church, it's almost as if you can accomplish being there praying all the time while being in your actual physical body somewhere else and doing other things.
1: Yes, it is. Uh, like it, it's, it's really hard to even kind of fit this in your head because on one hand— this seems like the kind of thing homer simpson would do in an episode right like try to put a wax version of himself in church so that he doesn't have to go Uh um but then it also again we have to think about the magical ideas about wax the idea like what happens when you create a lifelike version of yourself especially when there's already this history of creating sacred objects out of wax um yeah it's 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 ultimately really trippy stuff now, the tradition here seems to have in part involved out of that death mass creation uh, practice as well, uh, because this would have been the treatment befitting a regal face in death. But, hey, why not in life as well? Uh, if a funeral wax body could stand in for a, a corpse in a coffin, then why not stand in for the living body as well? Why not in a, in a way like stand in as a, like an additional uh, antenna for the human soul?
0: Oh, yeah. And, and lest we skip over that too quickly, I mean, another thing Balestriero talks about in her paper is the idea that, say, if you go to a – I think it would be like a, a 17th century or 16th century funeral in France, you, you mm-hmm. might expect to find a wax sculpture of the dead person. Yeah. H- how strange. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in a
1: way, it gets right back to what we were talking about. Do I want everyone to see my old body? Mm-hmm. uh they're in the c- casket how about a wax version of me that can be uh you know a little more beautified let's put that on top that's uh-huh. exactly what you would see
0: but i we should get back to these figures in the churches cuz this is this is just too good so you would have a, a a rich person would commission a wax sculpture of their body that could be put in the basilica in the church to just live there
1: Basically, yes. And there would be multiple figures that would populate the inside of the church, uh, alongside wax models of organs and the like, uh, and also some non-wax models. Uh, but apparently wax was quite popular. And, and this practice continued, especially in Florence and a few other areas, at least until Leopold II banned the practice in 1786. <laughs> The author writes, quote, these Boti, as they were known in the Florentine vernacular, were present in nearly all churches in Florence. But in the church of the uh, Santissima Annunziata, they became a major feature, turning the sanctuary into an enormous museum of wax figures of all types, including body parts, as well as whole figures.
0: This gets even weirder in a minute, but I'm going to hold off for a second.
1: That's right, because enter the Medici uh, family, the House of Medici. Uh, I was looking at uh, a book uh, titled "Medici Women" by Gabriel Langdon, uh, that is, uh, I think, j- that deals, you know, predominantly with with women in the the powerful House of Medici family, the Italian banking family, and political dynasty of the time. Uh, but there's a section in there talking about how the, the Medici family used Bodhi, um, that they were, uh, to, 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 first of all, to drive home. These figures were not meant to be burnt in the church. They were there to hang out. Yeah. Uh, they were there to as a magical presence in these particular churches. Uh, and there, they could last for decades and were, as Langdon describes them, ex voto centers in these churches. And by ex voto, we mean a religious offering given in order to fulfill a vow, But more importantly, uh, the author writes here, they made quite an impact on anyone who saw them, and they served to reaffirm uh, just Medici domination over politics uh, and also to to drive home their divine favor over that of their
0: enemies. Well, yeah, I mean, you're putting like like a secular, powerful person in effigy inside the house of worship.
1: Yeah, I mean, just imagine how grotesque that would be today. I mean, it would not surprise me if it were to take place today. Also, just given human nature has not changed that much, uh, sadly. But but, but yeah, just you go into church and here is a member of the Medici family in wax. Uh, This is almost like a religious icon in the church.
0: Adding to that, what if it could kill you? uh because the, there was a great passage and so, so also another uh thing we were reading was this book chapter in a a book called uh Disguised Deception and trompe uh Interdisciplinary Perspectives and it was a chapter by an artist and scholar named Catherine Hurd called Uneasy Associations Wax Bodies Outside the Canon and so Hurd is also talking about the this same church the Basilica of uh, Santissima Annunziata in Florence And uh, she writes, today, none of the 600 voti of Santissima Annunziata are known to survive. The church was partially cleared in 1665 when the number of accumulated voti had become so great that they had to be suspended from the ceiling of the church to accommodate their volume and poorly secured voti. Plummeting into the midst of parishioners at prayer had become a regular hazard. The remaining sculptures fell victim to the spirit of the Enlightenment during the 18th century when they were unceremoniously relegated to an outdoor courtyard of the church, left exposed to the elements to decay until they were finally melted down and made into candles. Oh, can you
1: imagine how weird and grotesque that courtyard became there, though, for a while? Oh, my
0: God. That, that would be a great scene for a horror movie.
1: Given the number of... Uh of, a, of Italian horror films. Um, and indeed, it, at least one example of a, of a wax horror film. There's a wax mask that uh, Dario Argento and Lucio Fulci were both involved in the creation of that is on my to watch list. I'm super excited to watch this film. Uh, so it's possible they get into some of this. But if not, like this is prime territory. Somebody make a, um, uh, like a, like a 17th um, uh, century horror film about these things.
0: Yeah. Yeah! Wow, Argento, Fulci, and wax figures. That sounds like the most disgusting thing I could possibly imagine. <laughs> just, I'm just picturing the textures. Yes, yeah.
1: The, the trailer. I've only seen the trailer so far, but it looks it looks amazing.
0: But I don't want to pass over either the idea of the wax figure suspended from the ceiling in the church, which could fall and crush you during worship.
1: Right. Like it, 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 the place has become like a Cracker Barrel of, uh, of <laughs> wax figures instead of uh, uh, antiquated farm equipment. Well, I
0: guess I want to be fair. I don't know if the wax figure would be heavy enough to crush you, but it could at least injure you.
1: It would disrupt your religious experience, I would think. I would think so. So this whole situation apparently took on a kind of cult flavor, um, You know, which is one of the reasons that it's eventually banned. Um, but uh, not only could these uh, Boti be revered uh, and the individual be revered through their wax likeness, they could, you know, they could certainly stand in positively for powerful uh, 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 members of, of the, the Medici family, but they could also be the target of, uh, of violence, um, violence that often reverberated with a, a very real sort of danger. Uh, Langdon writes about this, pointing out that writers of the time described this as someone having been "quote slaughtered in wax" or even as a murder. Uh, you know, they would describe the act of destroying the wax likeness of the individual a murder.
0: Well, in the fifty-three House of Wax, I, I reiterate, Vincent Price thinks his wax figures are as human as as he is, and he says he would rather die than see his artworks destroyed. Yeah.
1: So, so again, here in these examples, we see wax standing in for flesh and taking on magical properties. The likeness becomes the thing or the person. They are present in the church. They are devotees to God in wax. And if the effigy is then dragged out into the street and and stomped into the dirt, uh, then the violence is all that more direct and physical.
0: Now, one thing, uh, Balestriero points out in her paper is that wax, by its by its very like natural texture just lends itself so well to realism and an an unsettling level of realism like it it mimics flesh in a way that naturally becomes very unpleasant to people
1: yeah like you think of why people love marble sculpture so much is you know it's like oh it's like my flesh except it is it is solid. It is uh, resistant, and it is so perfect and and, and flawless. Mm-hmm. But with in wax, especially if you're dealing with a like a mold situation, you know you can capture every detail, every wrinkle and pore uh, can be uh, created. It is flesh like. It can be colored. It can be molded. And uh, one thing that this is something I, I wasn't even thinking about until uh, I, I read it uh, here is that. You know, you have actual organic materials that can be combined with the wax, actual body hair, actual hair, teeth and nails can be kind of um, melded (laughs) into the substance, which even just, just serves to blur that boundary between wax and flesh. And she also points out that, that these are the these very lifelike qualities in wax as a medium, that this would be part of the reason that it was abandoned uh, by the artistic community anyway, not, not by craftspeople, uh, during the rise of neoclassicism.
0: Yeah, neoclassicism was a, it was an aesthetic movement in the Western arts and literature that began in roughly like the mid-18th century, but it consisted basically of a a revival of interest in classical antiquity. So you would start to see artwork of the time much more favoring the style of the Greek and Roman arts, uh, architecture, yeah. theater, and that kind of thing. Uh, it's often described as a move away from the highly ornamental Rococo style that came before it. And it favored, you know, the, the the elegant symmetries of the Parthenon or ancient ancient Greek sculpture, uh, all of which have a sort of a, a simplicity to them that is not there in the wax sculpture. Like the wax sculpture goes against this because of how close to real it can get. Like the realism actually counted against it for the aesthetics of the day.
1: Yeah, and and I think. Or I suspect, anyway, that a lot of what it, we, dis, we consider now in terms of the uncanny valley effect would have also been present uh, with wax. Like, the, like wax just allows you to get so close to reality, you get into that potential, that, that arguable realm of, of, of close but not quite close enough, or so close but not perfect that it unnerves me is the art real or not? You know, I can look at a, at a, at a marble sculpture and I can walk through a sculpture garden. And yes, these are beautiful and lifelike and the craftsmanship, the the artistry involved is just amazing. uh, But I don't, Wonder if it's real. I'm certainly not accusing the the people of having uh, you, know, you know taken the corpses of their victims and used them as uh, models for these stone uh, works of art.
0: Yeah, and one of the things addressed in in a couple of these sources we've been talking about, definitely in uh Balestriero and in and in Catherine Hurd's chapter, is. The question of whether wax sculptures are art or not, or uh, yes. you know, wh- whether people consider them it, even potentially to be art. There, there's some kind of a there's a kind of bias against the media. Absolutely.
1: So we're going to take a break. But when we come back, we're going to dive into this very topic. But we're also going to get really into the topic of anatomical wax creations.
0: All right, we're back. All right. Now, while we've been talking about how uh, there's sort of a, a mixed history of how wax sculpture has been received as art, there is one area in which wax sculpture was uh, was and sort of always has been a big hit, which is in scientific and anatomical renderings of the human body. So uh, Balestriero writes, quote, With the advent of neoclassicism, these very qualities made the realistic nature of wax models seem repulsive, and the practice of artistic seroplastics—and that's uh, wax sculpture, basically, seroplastics meaning uh, wax—started a slow decline. From an artistic point of view, it virtually disappeared in the 19th century, surviving only in a minor way for votive uses, for example, by the creation of ex-voto objects and statues, at times containing relics of saints and martyrs. And in secular works such as those displayed at Madame Tussauds Museum in London, as we've already talked about. But it seems like maybe Madame Tussauds is a little bit gauche. <laughs> uh, she goes on. In contrast, the use of wax modeling techniques for didactic and scientific purposes increased considerably for the study of normal and pathological anatomy, obstetrics, zoology, and botany. So here, wax is finding its natural home. Maybe uh, maybe it's not always perfectly received in the art world, but it definitely has a role to play in science
1: yeah now now of course there's there's always been this connection between art and, and science, certainly certainly in pre photographic and cinematic days, because if you were a naturalist exploring the world, if you were if you saw a new species of bird, uh, you would need to draw that bird, you would need to have a record of that bird, uh you know even paint that bird, etc uh, likewise in the in the, we see this relationship between the study of human anatomy and the pursuit of art where oftentimes the artist is the anatomist and the anatomist is the artist. And sometimes it's difficult to say which is the primary occupation, which is the primary endeavor. Totally. But this brings us to the 16th century. Uh, During this time, we saw a renewed interest in human anatomy and it ends up sweeping across Europe. Human cadavers proved the most essential um, source in exploring the mysteries of human anatomy, uh, and, ana- and anatomical drawing was still an essential tool as well. But the two-dimensional medium had its limitations. Uh, access to cadavers was also not universal, and as we've discussed, they were in short supply at times. Uh, <laughs> you know, people were afraid of their bodies being stolen by
0: the uh, uh, the grave robbers. Yeah, if you were. Buried too close to like the Edinburgh uh, Medical College, you could very, very possibly have your corpse stolen for a dissection there. I mean, this was the age of dissections in order to educate and to study. Right. You know, what you, you got to know what the organs inside the body look like if you're going to do medicine, do surgery, and all that. But sometimes bodies are hard to come by especially in the summer.
1: (laughs) Yes. And, you know, I don't think I'd really thought about this, but uh, the author points out that, yeah, this practice becomes increasingly taxing on human revulsion during the warmer months of the year in many regions, you know? So, um, so it, it makes sense to have some other kind of three dimensional representation That is not an actual dead
0: body. Yeah. Now she points out one way around some of the cadaver limitations was uh, doing things to actual bodies to sort of uh, to make them last longer to some way copy parts of them. You, You had some procedures like that that came along.
1: Yeah, there was you know, injections that involved uh, colorless or colored preserving fluids, uh, composed of things like al- alcohol, mercury, different metals, and also wax as well. Uh, she writes that these methods produced results that, that were you know were were good, but that pro- that the uh, the preparations were not long lasting and that they subsequently deteriorated. Uh, so it's still not going to be as
0: good as say a model made out of wax. So why not make a grotesque, perfectly rendered dead body with all the tissues in place that never rots.
1: Exactly. I mean, as we've discussed, it's the perfect medium for creating human flesh and creating it in a way that is lifelike and even tweaking it a bit, you know. And so you had numerous anatomists and artists uh, from the 16th century onward that were working in wax, creating informative models of human anatomy, often in miniature. And I have to say, I've been eyeing examples of this for years. Uh, I used to do a blog series uh, for Mm -hmm. StuffToBlowYourMind.com back when we had a blog, uh, where I would basically, I would just, I would go to Getty Images and I would find cool images of things, uh, works of art, things from museums, and I would find a reason to post about them. And I I ran across a bunch of wonderful images of various wax anatomical models, and I was always Thinking in the back of my mind that I should do something about these never got around to it. Uh, But this is this is like such a a fascinating area of of, of where medicine and art uh, combine, uh, where they
0: where they intermingle. I would also say this is a place where you see some shocking examples of, like, real talent and bad taste coming together. You know, the, the kind of thing that a lot of people like today where you, you would be interested in grotesque, like, intentionally kind of, like, gross and morbid artwork, as I know mm-hmm. you and I in some – various ways actually are. Uh, you, you don't see as much of that back in the day, but you do see it in anatomical uh, renderings of the human body in wax.
1: Yes. Now, one of the the, the early figures uh, that the author points out here was uh, a character that is known as Sigoli. Their full name was uh, Lodovico Cardi, who lived 1559 through 1613. And um, they, they created this uh, small statue of, of an, an, an corset, I believe it is, which is the first known wax anatomical, anatomical model. It was slash is a miniature anatomical human, like like defleshed, clearly not made from a cast because it's the size of a doll, but it's detailed in 3D. It shows like, the details of human muscles Um Interestingly enough, I wasn't able to find it. I believe it is in the in the possession of a museum today, but I couldn't find a, a photograph of it. But I found uh, a, an artistic depiction of it. Uh, and it, again, is depicted as just this miniature humanoid uh, without skin uh, that you can hold in your hand, that you can uh, point out the various muscles on uh, that, you know, designed to be
0: used as, a, as an educational tool. I love it. I do wish we had a photo. <laughs> I, I wish you could get like a Barbie of it and, g- you know, give it to kids for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> now,
1: um, later in the, the 17th century, uh, we saw really, I think, an individual that could probably be considered the grandfather of a lot of this anatomical wax art. And as a Sicilian wax artist by the name of Zumbo, uh Giulio uh, Zumbo, who... Um, was apparently quite an interesting uh, uh, character. He was an abbot who initially took on religious themes in his artistic work, but then, uh, as Balestriero describes, his interests turned darker. He began to just consider death and decay and to sort of brood on death and decay. And he created a series of compositions known as the Theaters of Death, uh, which were apparently quite realistic, uh, there was the the plague, the triumph of time, the vanity of human glory, and of course
0: the syphilis <laughs> <laughs> fun I mean, uh, yeah, Zumbo was clearly highly talented and extremely morbid in his fascinations
1: and you can look up examples of his work there's a one in particular if you if you even just go to the Wikipedia page for Zumbo. Uh, there is a picture of, uh, of the plague, uh, which is just these wax corpses heaped. Uh, but also there's this there's this artistic um, energy to them, like there is movement to it, there is emotion to it. Um, it's it's quite a sight to behold, but it's certainly
0: not for all tastes. But Zumbo was not only working with religious artwork, he eventually did turn his hand to actual scientific uh, anatomical sculpture when he teamed up with a French surgeon named Guillaume Denou. Yes, uh,
1: he met Denou, and together they created anatomical models that they apparently sold, though by 1700 they stopped working together due to some sort of famous argument. They had some big Uh, blow-up, Yeah, yeah. So Zumbo moves to Paris, and with the support of the royal court, he collaborates with many other uh, dissectors and physicians and animists and creates anatomical waxes till he died the following year. Um, but all told, he was... You know, um, he, he was only active in the anatomy game for something like six years total. It really kind of came towards the end of his life. Uh, but his works were highly influential, enabling wax anatomical modeling to then evolve and ultimately expand outside of Italy and France throughout Western Europe. This opened the door for other wax anatomical artists to make a major splash, such as uh, Giovanni Manzolini, who lived 1700 through 1755, who worked with his wife, uh, Anna Morandi, who lived 1716 through 1774. Uh, She outlived him uh, by many years, and she actually continued this work after her husband's death and was quite successful in her own right, traveling to various institutes and foreign courts um, her anatomical models were very sought after, and uh, she also she. But but her work was was again um, artistic and, and anatomical. Uh, for instance, she created a self portrait of herself that is still around today. You can find uh, images of this online, uh, and it is it, it's it's beautiful. But it is also definitely a work of wax artistry, and as we'll discuss later, I, that does come with certain baggage. Like we're sort of we, there's a predisposition, I think. For us to find it um, unsettling.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, I guess this may be some form of subjective bias speaking, but I feel like it's almost universal to regard these things that as even when they're beautiful, they're also grotesque.
1: Yeah. So this art continues to spread, and then Balestriero provides an excellent and concise history of it all, um, getting into more detail than we, we can get into here. But it, it, the, it eventually arrives in England as well. You have, um, you have an actual um, English uh, wax anatomist uh, by the name of Joseph Towne, who lived 1808 through 1879. And apparently part of the reason that it was so lately established in England was, first of all, due to the greater availability of cadavers Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, prior to laws that restrained uh, the practice of obtaining them. Yeah,
0: we got dead bodies. We don't need wax sculptures here, you know.
1: (laughs) Yeah. But eventually, yeah, you have Joseph Town showing up. And he would go on to create uh, something like a thousand different wax anatomical models during his career that ultimately went to medical centers around the
0: world. Now there's an example of uh, of town's work that is uh, shown in a photograph in uh paper and it looks straight out of Hellraiser I mean I guess actually what it is is that the art style of the Hellraiser movies is clearly copied from this
1: yes there uh, so this this is where we're we're getting into a lot of artistic consideration uh, and uh, balestriero gets into this a good bit um, because on one hand you have the italians uh, who were sort of the the originators of this sort of art uh, along with you know the french and then you have the english coming along and doing their own spin on it and uh, uh, there are some some definite differences there's some side by side images in this paper that really pointed out but uh, this is where uh, the author really sums it up um She writes, Italian waxes are imbued with a real sense of beauty. The splendid Italian models of La Spicola, Florence, are graceful statues that do not seem to belong in the dissecting room. Specimens from northern countries such as the UK, the Netherlands, or Germany are usually more realistic, almost brutal, preferring anatomical accuracy rather than artistic flair. One of the major differences between the Italian and English wax models is the fact that the former are alive whilst the later are lifeless.
0: Yeah, she highlights this in a number of different ways, that like the the Italian artists were much more concerned with making the wax anatomical models not disgusting and even sometimes kind of lively and happy looking and seductive somehow whereas the stuff you'd get with Robert Town or uh some of the other uh artists in in England or Germany would be more just kind of a like it wasn't it wasn't really worried about being grotesque and wasn't try it wasn't trying to comfort you and say like look at this look at these happy eyes yeah,
1: she describes Town's, uh, some of Towns' waxes as being "quote practical, crude, true to death." <laughs> but you know, for my own part, looking at various examples, I I, I do think it's fair to add that Towns' work is beautiful in its own right uh you know there there is certainly more of a brutal realism to his works but one i think could argue that some of the italian works are actually more unnerving because there's this weird spark of life to them you know like they they, there's something in their eyes you feel you look at them and you're like this this human being has no skin and yet they are you know glancing across uh, the room at something whereas town's work uh looks like a dead body, but as uh, and partially flayed body, but as seen through uh, you know the eyes of someone with an appreciation for the beauty of death
0: yeah maybe maybe it is a little bit more troubling if like you know you're taking apart the torso of a wax sculpture to see its internal organs, but it's like reclining in a chair in a, in a way that almost resembles classical painting, and it's got this brightness in its eyes, like let's go for a picnic. <laughs>
1: um there's there's another whole uh, area that she gets into the medici venus um basically touching on the popularity of anatomical venuses during the 19th century these would be artfully sculpted out of wax reclining female nudes that also had dismountable torsos so you could go up to them um and you could like open them up like the hood of a of a vehicle You know, and then look at the wax organs within. See how human anatomy works under the skin, and there would often be a fetus in the womb as well. Um, Which apparently, you know, this this wouldn't have really the inside wouldn't have matched the outside, but it reflected what was what little was known about uh, uh, actual um, uh, fetal development at the time. Uh, And by the way, over at Atlas Obscura, a a website that I've I've loved for for years, but basically is devoted to helping you find weird wax museums uh, in your area, (laughs) wherever you are. Yeah, pretty much. the, the, there's a great 2013 article from Morbid Anatomy's Joanna Epstein about anatomical Venuses and where you can find them today. And and apparently she was setting out to chronicle all the ones that she could, um, she could travel to. It's t- titled An Ode to an Anatomical Venus, Waxing Poetic <laughs> on the Uncanny Allure of 18th Century uh, Dissectable Women. Now, at this point, let's get back to the question then is it art <laughs> um because clearly as we've discussed like this especially with the the anatomical art there is this intermingling of the artistic and the uh, you know the purely scientific, uh, you know, and certainly we even see a divide within the tradition with the the idea that like the French and Italian version is more in line with um, artistic values, whereas the the English and German models are are less so. This is a question that that Balestriero, uh, gets into in the article as well. The, 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 apparently, there is this. There was long an attitude against wax art. It was considered more of a craft, uh, more devoted either to morbidity or to anatomical study. And uh, apparently this survived well into the 20th centuries, where you had critics like E.H. Uh, Gombrich, who I was not familiar with, uh, who expressed that wax works were, quote, situated outside the limits of symbolization. So I guess the idea is that they're just too realistic to do the things that art is supposed
0: to do. Mm -hmm. Like it's just too close. Like (laughs) there's not enough enough distance. I don't know. I mean it, it seems arbitrary to me.
1: Yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem to line up with, with what we know about um, art photography, but I don't know. Then again, I'm not an expert on the, the, the history of, um, of, of art theory and so forth. But it seems like the, the argument that, that Gombrich was making here would not be the same sort of argument you would make about photography. Uh, there, there's plenty of, of very artistic photography that is about capturing the stark reality of a situation, right? That, uh, but I'm not sure that um, you know the limits of symbol, symbolization really show up in that.
0: Uh yeah, I mean I don't want to be unfair to this critic, but part of me suspects that there's just a sort of instinctual revulsion that many people feel. It's the same reason there's so many house of wax horror movies and that and that is it it finds difficulty being articulated as an aesthetic uh as like a formal aesthetic criteria. So instead it just gets criticized as like, well, it's too realistic or something.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, but, but uh, as we mentioned the rise of neoclassism earlier, apparently, especially with the rise of neoclassism in art, wax was often considered a lower medium, a fragile medium. And so the art was rather ex- was either you know, ex- expelled from the art world or left the do- to the domain of the anatomists and, of course, you know crude wax museums, uh, which apparently emerged out of the wax effigy tradition. Uh, to come back to that, Westminster Abbey, for instance, uh, has quite a collection of royal wax effigy Dating back to Edward III, who died in 1377. Um so this is where we get the, the Madame Tussauds um um tradition you know the idea ultimately that we should put we should have representations of royal people or failing that uh famous people or infamous people like the modern royalty of the day the Paris Hiltons of the day <laughs> or at least the the mid to uh, early 2000s
0: well i mean yeah uh, so Madame Tussauds is going to be full of celebrities right it'll have it'll have a i remember I think I remember them having like a really good Pierce Brosnan as James Bond wax Mm -hmm. sculpture. Um, And I think sometimes the celebrity sculptures get like attacked or vandalized. I don't know if that has something, you know, somebody – you don't like Pierce Brosnan, so you knock his head off or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's getting into the magic of wax, then wax effigies. What do you do with a wax
1: effigy? It's either there to revere the individual or to lash out against them. Yes.
0: Uh, But the other thing I was getting to is that it, it does seem somehow like there is a very clear natural draw to let's do some serial killers and let's do like a dungeon with, you know, tortures and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, that was a, that was a long-standing uh, part of Madame Tussauds in London. Uh, Madame Tussaud, uh, by the way, who lived uh, seventeen sixty-one through eighteen fifty. Uh, was a French artist who studied under uh, Swiss physician uh, Philippe uh, Curtius. Um, But one of the main attractions at Madame Tussauds was always the Chamber of Horrors, which was, again, full of grave robbers, serial killers and burglars. Uh, Incidentally, Jack the Ripper was was never part of it because Tussaud had a policy against representing individuals whose identity and appearance was unknown.
0: Huh. Uh, That's an interesting principle. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, so this is how we get obviously the thing that the that it 's most famous for is the Chamber of Horrors, which is that seems to be confirmed by those reports from one thousand nine hundred and twenty five that when uh, Madame Tussauds is burning down, the people in the streets are not saying, "Oh, I hope that the sculpture of King George is okay they 're asking how 's Crippen yeah wh- what about the <laughs> you know, what about the norfolk strangler we 've saved Burke. How about Hare?
1: Make sure both <laughs> we must reunite Burke and hare don 't let them burn." Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, sadly, the Chamber of Horrors apparently closed in 2016. Is no longer a part of uh, Madame Tussauds. Uh, at least that's that, that, that according to the materials I was looking at. But. Uh, but certainly, the Chamber of Horrors in wax museums is one of the the, the major influences on uh, you know on on horror cinema in the the 1920s onward. This idea of the wax museum as a place where unsavory characters are recreated in wax, uh, and where haunted or unnatural things may be going
0: on. It's an interesting mixing of two very different streams that that feel odd when they get into each other one is the standard fascination with violence and pain and death and morbid mm-hmm. topics and all that and then the other is that well it's a museum and it's non-fiction so it's almost like it's educational yeah it's 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 weird it's it's also just
1: really um it's a really interesting, I think, thought experiment to take these wax movies and then take everything that we've discussed here thus far, and then try and figure out what is what is this end product saying about all the human history with wax that came before it. Especially, what is it saying about the, the anatomical history of wax models? And then the, the use of wax models as stand-ins for human beings to be either revered or punished. Um, because I think we see shadows of all of this in these works. All, we also see uh, treatments of, of wax as flesh, magical and transformative. Wax is a meditation on both the preservation of human flesh, because what are these uh, these uh, these wax creepos and doing these movies. They're preserving their victims in wax. But then also things made out of wax, uh, they got to burn. If you, it's like bringing a, rolling a cannon on stage. You bring out some wax in a film, you've got to melt some wax as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it is not a standard trope that a person who is an obsessively uh, devoted artist will eventually turn to crime and violence. But it is that if you're obsessively devoted to wax artistry, you have wax crime in your future. That's just yeah, what people assume.
1: It's such a weird stereotype, um, especially, again, considering just how important this was, uh, uh, you know, for, for a long time in just human anatomy and the understanding of the human body. Like these were informative educational models uh, that ultimately helped save lives. Yeah. Train surgeons without the need for grave
0: robbing or put honest grave robbers out of business. Oh, I've never thought about that. That would be a great premise for like a for like a, a movie or something. You know, you you've got a pretty good grave robbing business going, but then somebody shows up at the local medical college with a wa- a bunch of wax sculptures. And, oh my god! And now you're like, ah, what am I gonna do? You've got to destroy them somehow or something.
1: Oh man! So grave robbers versus wax master with all the possible shenanigans that could pop up because uh, you know they're gonna be wax automatons there are going to be uh <laughs> the sky's the limit there's so much uh, room for exploration here
0: copyright stamped stamped ours we're, yeah you can't have it
1: <laughs> i don't know i'm i'm just hoping that the there the, may be someone out there is listening to this, the filmmaker or future filmmaker who will make the next great wax film, mm-hmm. uh, in which case I, I think we've presented a number of of wonderful historical uh, and scientific anecdotes here that could be um, that could prove useful all right on that note, we are going to close the wax museum uh, for the day, but certainly stick with us as we continue to explore. Halloween related topics the entire month of October maybe even longer I don't know who knows what the future will bring (laughs) Uh, in the meantime if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind you can find us wherever you get your podcasts wherever that happens to be we just ask that you rate, review, and subscribe
0: huge thanks as always to our excellent audio producer Seth Nicholas Johnson if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hi you can email us at contact at Stuff to Blow Your Mind Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. So, this is the business